Welcome to this week's message from Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. We'll get back into our series here. We're in a series called Beginnings. Today is uh, part six, and uh, we're talking about Genesis chapters one and two, which are the first two chapters of the Bible, so they are the beginnings. And by the way, someone last night said that this, uh, you can just tell what's going on in Canada right now. They, this background reminded them of marijuana. <laughs> and that is not what it is. And clearly it isn't that, not that I would know. Uh, but uh, anyway, that is not a social commentary on what's happening in our country right now at all. Okay, just so we, uh, where was I? Anyway, uh, <laughs> beginning. So the first couple of chapters of Genesis. And uh, it's the beginnings of the Bible, but it's more than just the beginnings in terms of where it is. It's the beginnings of so much, uh, beginnings of creation, uh, beginnings of humanity, beginnings of marriage and gender. And we touched on some of those very sensitive topics in the last two messages. Um, today, I want to I talk about, uh, you know, as we've been going through this series, I get various questions and discussions. And it's, it's interesting, when you're in the first few chapters of Genesis, uh, many times we need to tread lightly because for every question we answer, it seems like it opens up a Pandora's box of other questions. And there certainly is lots of mystery in the first couple of chapters of Genesis as well. And we will certainly touch on some of those areas today. And there'll be some areas where we'll just look in and say we don't know all the answers to that. But today there's, a, there's an overarching question I want to answer today, and that is, what is the place of the Garden of Eden in God's overall plan? And it's in, this is important for a number of reasons. It's important for how we view suffering. It's also important for how we read the Bible in its context and even the gospel message. Um, it, it's, uh, I think it's a little bit of a shift from the way many of us normally tend to view the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1. So I'm just going to read you. I don't have time to read through the entire chapter today. I'm going to skip through it. But I want you to see there's a theme in Genesis chapter 1 that, uh, that many people have obviously talked about before and stuff, and it's a very obvious one, but it's this whole theme of God's creation is good. And today I want to look at what does that mean it was good and how does that fit into the overall picture of what God did with, has done with Jesus and heaven and all that sort of stuff. But anyway, Genesis 1, starting in verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. And this will happen over and over again throughout this chapter. God will make something, and then he'll say, it was good. Skipping ahead to verse 9. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Okay, over and over again, seven times in Genesis 1, God says that his creation is good. We'll skip ahead now, just about to the end of the chapter, verse 25. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then finally, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Let's pray, and then we'll begin to work our way through this. Lord Jesus, first of all, we thank you for all the young families that have been up in, on stage here in the various services this weekend. Thank you for blessing them with children. Lord, I pray that covenant we read there, so many powerful things in that covenant. 
And I pray that you would give each of these parents that have been up here this weekend the grace to follow through on that commitment, that they will walk with you, that they will have a regular devotional walk of prayer and being in your word together, that they will pray for their families, that they will protect the purity and integrity of their homes, Lord, and the rest of us in this church as well. Children are the most precious gift you've given us here on this planet. Help us to raise the kids you've blessed us with for you. And now, Lord, as we study again in Genesis 1 and 2 and beginnings, there's so much foundational worldview stuff here. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would open up the scriptures again in fresh ways, and then at the end of this message, apply it to our lives in fresh ways. In your name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, and it was very good. And, uh, and, and that's good, right? So that's very good that God made everything good. But how we as Christians understand what God was saying there, uh, oftentimes, and not that it's totally wrong, not at all, but, uh, but it's, it's certainly an oversimplification and it misses sort of the purpose of, of what the Garden of Eden was always meant to be. So how many of us Christians have just sort of naturally taken it over the years is the fact that God made it very good means it, that was sort of his end goal. He, he made things how he always wanted them. So this is how many of us as Christians view the storyline of the Bible. And again, it's not that this is totally wrong or that it's false. It's just that it's such a vast oversimplification that it misses out on a lot of things. But kind of how a lot of us Christians just sort of naturally view the storyline of the Bible and where the, the Garden of Eden fits in is God made his creation very good, which what we think is that was what God had always looked forward to, was the Garden of Eden. This is what he had always wanted, so he made it. Then Adam and Eve sinned and messed it up. And then the whole plan of Jesus and redemption is all about getting us back to what God had always wanted, which was the Garden of Eden. Because the Garden of Eden was very good, which means it was perfect in the sense that it was, what God, it was God's ultimate end goal. But if we read through the New Testament, what we'll find, and if we're carefully reading what the New Testament writers are telling us about the gospel message, what we'll find is that actually the Garden of Eden was never God's end goal to begin with. I want to read you some passages, and then we'll start to flesh out what, what the place of the Garden of Eden in God's overall plan. <clears throat> but let's start in Ephesians chapter 1, and there's many passages we could look at. I just want to look at, at three in the first part of this message. And we'll start in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him. Now notice this statement here, before the foundation of the world. Now that is a fascinating little statement. Before the foundation of the world, God had a plan before Genesis 1. Okay, long before Genesis 1, God had a plan. Okay, before the foundation of the world, before he ever created anything, before, you know, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, he, he had a plan before all of that. And what was that plan? Well, in this, in this passage, Paul talks about what that plan was before he ever created anything. And we see in the two words right there before, before, it says, even as he chose us in him. Now that is very interesting. Before God created the universe, before Genesis 1 verse 1 happened, before Adam and Eve ever ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, before any of that happened, God already had a plan, and that plan had to do with Jesus, that we would 
be, we would approach God through Jesus. We would be in him. Now, if we go on to the next verses, let me just flesh this out a little bit more, okay? That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So before he created anything, before in the beginning, before Genesis 1, God had a plan that we would be in his family but that we would be adopted through Jesus. So I want you to notice that from before creation, the plan was always Jesus. Now that's important in terms of the Garden of Eden because again, and again, it's not like what we've always believed is is totally wrong. It's more of just an oversimplification and I want to show what some of the details come alive when we look at this closer. But many of us Christians, we think again, the Garden of Eden was God's final plan. But in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were not relating to God through Jesus. Okay, so they had, they were in the garden with God. That will have been amazing, but they weren't, they they weren't part, that wasn't part of the plan. The plan was you're going to come through Jesus. And that was always part of the plan was that we would be adopted into his family through Jesus. Okay, that was important to God before anything was made. Now, I'm just going to show you this in a few more passages because this more and more stuff comes to light wherever we read this in the New Testament and it's all over. Okay, but let's look at first Corinthians chapter two. All right. Paul writes this, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So here he is again talking about the gospel message. Now skip ahead a couple of verses, and it says this in verse 6, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Okay, so we're going to read the next couple of verses in just a moment, but I want you to see again, throughout the New Testament, okay, over and over again, Paul and the other, and Peter does the same thing, and John talk about a plan the plan of the gospel message with Jesus and us being adopted into God's family through Jesus, they talk about that plan as having started before creation. So what we view is, is the Garden of Eden was God's final end goal. Adam and Eve messed it up. And then the plan with Jesus was sort of a mop-up operation that didn't need to have happened to get us back to the Garden of Eden. But actually what we see is the plan of Jesus was not a mop-up operation. It was always God's plan. God didn't plan us to get to him through Jesus because of sin. He'd already planned that before sin. Now, again, that opens up all kinds of questions, such as, you know, things philosophers and theologians have debated for centuries, uh, such as one question would be, did God need Adam and Eve to sin in order for him to fulfill his plan, which is always to go through Jesus? And again, I mean, we're touching on things now. The Bible doesn't give us the whys. Okay, so, and I don't, I, I, don't, I don't even pretend to know some of the answers to some of those questions, other than to say, I feel very uncomfortable saying that God needed Adam and Eve to sin. Perhaps he had another way of it happening. Perhaps if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, uh, he would have sent at some point anyway Jesus to be born as a human being, and maybe there was some way that we would still approach God through Jesus. I don't know, but in the end, he knew the sin was coming anyway, and his plan was... I don't just want a relationship with human beings. I want them in my family, and I want them adopted through my son, Jesus. So that was always the plan from before the ages. Now, if we keep reading here, verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood this, 
For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So now that's fascinating. Paul says that this was God's plan all, all the way since before the beginning. And, but he, in his sovereignty and wisdom, he kept the plan hidden from Satan. And Satan just played right into his hands. Satan thought he was stopping God by, by having Jesus put to death on the cross. But instead, Satan actually became the means of accomplishing the purpose God had had since before Genesis 1 verse 1. That's called the sovereignty of God. Even when you think you're thwarting the purposes of God, you only end up playing into the plans that were there from before anything was created. Okay? They would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, now look at this, this next part. But, as it is written, and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, again, what I want to point out, what I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, no eye has seen, and the heart of man has not imagined what God has prepared for us in the end. Now, that no eye has seen and no heart of man imagined includes Adam and Eve. Whatever Adam and Eve experienced in the Garden of Eden, as amazing as the Garden of Eden must have been, was nothing like what the real end goal is, which is beyond what anyone has seen or imagined. So we see right there that from the beginning, the Garden of Eden was never meant to be God's end goal. Adam and Eve messed up, and now, okay, I have to come up with a plan to bring it back to this. That's not what it was. The Garden of Eden was always only phase one of a much bigger plan that was always supposed to run through Jesus and was always supposed to end in an even better place in the Garden of Eden, which is beyond what anybody has seen or imagined. Does that make sense? So the Garden of Eden was not God's end goal, and Adam and Eve kind of messed it up. The Garden of Eden was always meant to be phase one. Now, I'll just show you one more passage, and we'll start to look at some of the implications in terms of what this means for how we view things like suffering in the world and, and how we read the Bible and stuff. But Titus 1 Starting in verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life. Now this again, so many fascinating statements, and there's other passages we could look at in the New Testament, but in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Now that's interesting again. Before Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning, before God created anything, before anybody existed, he already made a promise. And you say, who did he make the promise to? Well, I mean, he's three and one. He made a decree. And he decreed before he made a single thing, he said, I'm going to make human beings. And I'm going to make this thing called a universe. I'm going to make human beings on it. And I'm going to give them eternal life. Okay? He said that before he created anything. Okay? Now, the interesting thing is, again, often as Christians, when we think of eternal life, we think of quantity of life. So we think of what God was promising there as, as I'm going to make human beings and I'm going to make them so that they live and live and live and live and live forever and never die. Okay? Now certainly eternal life includes that. But throughout the New Testament, we see very clearly that eternal life is primarily speaking about something much bigger than quantity of life. In fact, the New Testament teaches us that all human beings will live forever in terms of quantity of life. Isn't that true? Every single human being who's ever been born will live eternally a quantity of life. Some will live apart from Jesus, and some will live an eternal quantity of life with Jesus. So if this is just talking about quantity of life, every human being gets that. But he's talking about a lot more than quantity of life. And again, this ties in to Genesis chapter 1, because a lot of people just automatically assume, well, God made Adam and Eve with eternal life. 
Well, in the sense that they were in his presence and they had access to the tree of life, they, had the, they, they could live forever in terms of quantity of life. But in terms of how the New Testament and how Paul define eternal life, Adam and Eve did not have eternal life. And let me show you that. Let's just take a brief. We'll come back to Titus 1. Let's just take a brief. And we could go through tons and tons of scripture. Let's just take a quick brief breeze through the New Testament and the teaching of the New Testament on what eternal life is. Let's start with John 17, verse 3, since Jesus gives us a definition right here. And this is eternal life, that they may live forever and ever and ever. No. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. What's eternal life? Knowing God, two things specifically, knowing God and knowing Jesus. That's what eternal life is. It's quality. To live forever and ever and ever, it actually by itself is, is not necessarily a good thing. It can be, if you, it's only a good thing if it's an amazing life. Isn't that true? Like living forever is only great if you have a great life. Living forever is terrible if you have anything less than a great life. So eternal life is so much more than quantity, it's quality. Eternal life is to know God. But it's not just to know God it generally, it is also to know Jesus Christ. That's life in eternity because he's the source of life. When we're filled with his love and his joy for all of eternity, that's something that's worth living forever as. And so Jesus says this in, in John chapter 14, verse 6. He says this, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. Again, interesting, not the eternal life. Eternal life in the New Testament isn't a quantity of time. It's a person. It's knowing a person. Jesus says, I am the life. To live forever without Jesus is not eternal life. But to live forever with Jesus, I am the life. Now again, if we go back to Genesis chapter 1, Adam and Eve didn't have a relationship with Jesus. I'm not saying it was bad in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden must have been amazing. But the plan all along was God's son would take on flesh and to know that son, Jesus, would be eternal life. That's how amazing he is. Okay? 1 John chapter 5, and again, we can look at many passages. I just want to make sure you, you see that I'm not making this up. This is, a, this is a key theme in the New Testament. 1 John 5, 11 to 12, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is where? In his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Literally, uh, in eternity, after this age, when, when Jesus comes back to earth, the thing that is so amazing about eternity is how amazing he is. And when we're in his presence and he smiles at us and he gives us tasks and we get to do stuff with him and hang out with him and worship him all together, that is what joy is. Your joy circuits will be blown. That's what you were made for. You were made for a relationship with Jesus Christ. That wasn't a mop-up part of the plan. Oh, Adam and Eve messed up. I had wanted the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve messed up. You know what? We'll do this Jesus thing, and then we'll throw in kind of that kind of life. No, no, that was the plan all along. That's eternal life, to know Jesus. So the Garden of Eden was just phase one of something bigger that was coming. And again, as I said before, Adam and Eve didn't have Jesus. They didn't know Jesus. Their experience of life was not eternal life the way it's intended for us. That's beyond what any human being has seen or imagined. Look at what Paul says. 
Philippians 3, 8 to 9, I count, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul says, this is how amazing it is. Now, us in our selfishness and our fleshliness, you know, and we call ourselves Christians, and we have little glimpses sometimes of how amazing it is to be with Jesus, but lots of time we're just distracted and we're apathetic in those various things. But someday we're going to meet Jesus, and none of the stuff we're reading about or talking about here is going to be an exaggeration. It won't even have touched how great he is. It's going to be that amazing. And Paul had, was touching on it already in this life. He said, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's the ultimate thing. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So let's go back to Titus now and let's look at this. And again, I could show you this in a number of other passages. I'm, I'm going to stop it at Titus and we'll move on to some of the implications. But Titus chapter 1 Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. Not just living forever, but in hope of this life with Jesus. Okay? Which God, who never lies, okay, promised before the ages began. It was always a life with Jesus that he was planning before the ages began. Now look at the next verse. Verse 3, and at the proper time... The proper time, it was never meant to be over here in the Garden of Eden. It was, there was always a pro, the proper time is the proper time. There was a planned time when Jesus would become human and we would get to know him in the flesh. And then there was a planned time when everything would be consummated at the end beyond what any eye has seen or the heart of man imagined. So the Garden of Eden was phase one in that bigger plan. And at the proper time manifested in his words, the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. All right, so I want to just do a quick recap of five points. These are not the only five points. I want to do a quick recap of, of five points now, uh, what this means in terms of how we read Genesis 1, and then we'll look at some of the implications for life and theology and all that. So there are a number of ways in which the future, which was always part of God's plan, is superior, you know, after Jesus returns, that future that God has always planned is, is vastly superior to the Garden of Eden. So that, and the whole point is, is just to show that the Garden of Eden was phase one in a bigger plan. Okay? So let me show you five ways the future is vastly superior to the Garden of Eden. First of all, there's going to be no opportunity for sin. Aren't you glad? I mean, I don't want to go back to the Garden of Eden because they messed up in the Garden of Eden. I mean, that's not good news. That's horrifying news if we can mess up in heaven. No. The end, the consummation of all things is this time when there's no more, uh, we'll look at that verse in a, in a moment, of no more death and crying and sorrow and pain. In the Garden of Eden, they had, God put the tree of the, of the knowledge of, of good and evil in there. There's not going to be opportunity to sin in the end. So this was phase one of a bigger plan. Number two, we will be clothed. And I'm not going to take time to develop each one of these scripturally. These, lots of these are things I've preached on before, but I'm just kind of bringing them together. Another way that the future is much better than phase one, which was always only intended to be phase one. Number two, we will be clothed in Christ's nature and Christ's righteousness, which means this is what makes eternal life eternal life. Even if you had an opportunity to sin after the resurrection, you wouldn't want to because you'll have Jesus Christ's nature in you. Which is why you won't be able to, you won't be able to sin, you won't be able to get depressed, you won't be able to be anxious. Aren't you glad? That's eternal life. We'll no longer have Adam's nature, we'll have Jesus' nature. And that is a big disadvantage that Adam and Eve never had. 
But that was, all, that was part of God's plan all along. That wasn't just the mop-up. That was part of the plan all along, that we would have Christ's nature in us. Number three, there will be no tempter. In the Garden of Eden, Satan was wandering around. Aren't you glad? Revelation chapter uh, 20 says he's going to be locked up for good. No more tempter wandering around. Okay? Number four, we will get to be with Jesus in the flesh. That's the, at the consummation of all things. When Jesus comes back, we will get to be with him in the flesh, and that is the ultimate thing. That wasn't, the Garden of Eden was not the ultimate thing. It was phase one on the way to the ultimate thing, which would run through Jesus. And then lastly, as I've mentioned a number of times already in this message, the context, the place, everything. When Jesus comes to earth and brings the, the, the new Jerusalem down to earth, it's actually going to be the context, the place, our experience of everything is going to be beyond what anyone has seen or imagined. It's going to be far beyond the Garden of Eden. All right? So the Garden of Eden was not God's end goal. The Garden of Eden was phase one of a much bigger plan. But now this opens up some other questions again. And again, we'll, we'll have to tread carefully. We have to tread humbly because uh, there's lots of mystery here. But the, what it brings up is if, if this is our end goal over here where there's no more suffering and no more sin and we get to be with Jesus in the flesh, so why on earth did God not skip this one over here? He knew from before he created the world. I mean, he could have created any of a vast and infinite number of different worlds and different things. And he chose to create the one he created in his infinite goodness, knowing Adam and Eve would sin and all the things that would come out of that. Why on earth? And all the suffering and pain, because it's suffering. That's what really bugs us. It bugs us more than sin, to be honest. Isn't it true? Most of us, it's the suffering. We could live with the sin if the sin didn't come with suffering and death, right? In our flesh. I don't mean that as a theological statement that we should like that. It's just, that's just how we are. Okay? So we wonder, why did God do it like this? Why didn't he just take us right to the end? Okay? Now, let me give you the oversimplified answer that me and many preachers have given for years, and it's not wrong. It is certainly uh, true to a large extent, but again, it's overly simplified. And because of it, we miss out on some of what God was doing from the beginning. The oversimplified answer we give is, and that I've given many times, is God wanted us as people to have free will. Okay? So God had to give us a choice because he doesn't want us to be robots. He wants us to love him. Now, again, there is no question elements of free will and choice are certainly, no doubt, playing a part in you know, why God did things the way he did them. But I always just gave that answer so flippantly until one year I was teaching a number of years ago in school ministers and a very astute student raised their hand and said, are you saying we'll be robots in heaven? And I started to answer confidently because I always answer confidently. I just start, and I have no answer for that question. Because wait a minute, that's the truth. Are we going to be robots in heaven? We're not going to be robots in heaven. We're going to have, did, does Jesus have free will? Jesus has free will, but he never sins. Okay, he doesn't ever even want to sin. We'll have free will in heaven in the sense, we will not be robots, and yet we will have no opportunity for sin. So obviously, it is logically possible for God to create a world where we love. We're going to love Jesus and each other more in heaven than we do now, and yet we will have no opportunity for sin. So obviously there's more going on here than just that 
God had to let Adam and Eve sin because he wanted us to have free will. There's more going on. I, I still, in the end, believe there is something of choice tied up in all of this, but there's more going on here uh, than just that. So, and again, the Bible does not give us all the whys. Okay, so that's why I say we got to tread humbly and carefully here. But when we start to realize that the Garden of Eden wasn't the end goal that Jesus was, I think it starts to open the door a little bit to some of the other reasons why God would make things the way they're made. So let's imagine for a moment that God had just skipped to the end. What are the things we miss out on if God skips to the end? First of all, we miss out on Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. Now, some of us might just think, well, that doesn't sound like such a bad thing. Think in eternity if we had no experience or knowledge of the fact that God actually loves us so much that he would be willing to die for our sins. But we would have no concept of that. Somehow, for God's ultimate glory and our benefit, it is really good. There would be no way of us knowing how much God really loves us except that he did that. And somehow, because... In the end, God in his infinite goodness decided to make the world the way he made it. So somehow it's better that he did it this way than that we skip ahead to the end. I think that's one of the reasons why. You want to think a second reason why is? In the same way that Christ wanted to show us his love by dying for us, in the same way we would never get to exercise sacrificial love for him unless we lived in this world first. See, in the end here, we're going to love Jesus so much But one kind of love we will not get to show him over here is the kind of love that would sacrifice and suffer for him. And there's actually something beautiful. Those of you who have ever loved a family member, a parent, a spouse, and have had opportunity to love them in a sacrificial way, there is something powerful that is drawn out of the heart that is done in us that can only be done through sacrifice. And there's something beautiful about that that goes both ways, that he gets the opportunity to sacrifice for us. He does it first. But that also we, to some level, get to sacrifice back to him. Those are opportunities we'll never have in the future. But there's so much more than that. How would we know Jesus in the flesh? To humble himself, that God would humble himself and become part of his creation to be born as a baby. All of these things we lose... We lose these things for his glory. We lose these things for our experience if he skips right to the end. And so again, for some of you, you're going through suffering. That's maybe not a good enough reason other than just to say that God in his infinite wisdom and goodness decided that suffering, to have this first part go through suffering was better than to skip the suffering. And I want to show you a verse now I want to skip ahead here to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. And Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 says this. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, astonishing verse. Astonishing verse. And again, I'm going to keep saying it. I'm going to be a broken record this whole message. There's a lot here in this verse we can't figure out. How on earth can Jesus, who is perfect, be made perfect through suffering? So we can say what this doesn't mean, just to make sure we don't wander off into heresy here. This doesn't mean that Jesus had bad character, and then the suffering helped smooth out his character. No, no. That's why we need suffering. Jesus had perfect character. He never sinned in his 
in his words, in his thoughts, in his deeds. He was the pure and spotless Lamb of God. That's why he was, a, that's why he was worthy to die for our sins. Okay? And yet somehow this verse, the inspired word of God, tells us that somehow he was perfected through suffering. Somehow Christ's suffering enhanced his glory and his perfection. Now, that is just a stunning statement. But if that verse was all we had, that would already be reason enough right there. God in his infiniteness, if he was perfected through going through that somehow, if his glory and perfection were somehow enhanced by going through suffering, just there is reason enough why he would create the Garden of Eden the way he did as phase one of a plan that would go through Jesus and through suffering before ending in a world with no suffering. And if Jesus could be perfected through suffering, let me ask you this. How much more us? If Jesus was perfected through suffering, how much more us? There is something necessary that God saw in the whole thing of suffering. And so, now, by the way, I'm going to show you another verse. Before I do that, though, I want to show you the encouraging part because I want to make sure we don't get stuck on suffering is so good that some of us start to wonder maybe there will be suffering in the future. There most certainly will not be suffering in the consummation of all things when Jesus returns to earth, okay? And I just want to make sure of that. The suffering is good temporarily for a greater purpose, but let me just show you that it does end. Revelation 21, verses 2 to 4. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down into heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Now that's good news. There's lots of mystery right now as to all the reasons why God makes us go through this first. But one thing that's not a mystery is what's coming at the end is no more anxiety, no more depression, no more sickness, no more cancer, no more tragedy. All of that is going to be gone. But it's interesting that God never made that promise in Genesis chapter 1. From the very beginning, he made a world that at the very least had the potential for suffering if it didn't have already some measure of suffering in it even before Adam and Eve sinned, okay? I want to just show you something. Again, Christians will disagree on the timing of when the suffering started, but at the very least, Genesis 1 was created with the potential for suffering, whereas this next world that's coming has no potential for suffering. But I want to show you a verse. Because we tend to read the Bible uh, as Garden of Eden was God's end goal, we messed up, now we're trying to go back there, we miss some of the things Genesis actually tells us. For example, one passage in Genesis 3.16, very interesting. And again, we want to be careful with some of these verses. We don't want to read too much into them, but we want to look into them and we want to see. Wow, I never noticed that before. Genesis 3 verse 16 says this. This is after Adam and Eve have sinned. And now God comes and talks to Adam and Eve and he's going to tell them the, the repercussions of their sin. And I want you to see what he says. To the woman, he said, that's God, I will surely multiply. It also can be translated increase. I will surely multiply your pain. Now, I want you to notice here, he does not say you're going to start having pain. And let me explain to you what pain is because you don't know what that is. That's not what he says. He says, I'm surely going to multiply. I'm going to increase your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Again, I don't want to build a whole theology off of one verse. I just want to point something out here. This verse certainly seems to suggest 
that already right at the beginning in phase one, there was some measure of suffering already there. Obviously, sin brought death to the human race. No question about that. And Romans confirms that. But certainly, even before the fall, at the very least, there was the potential for suffering. But from verses like that, it even seems like there was some measure of suffering in the creation from the very beginning. And you say, why would God create a world like that? Remember, it's all about the end goal. It's all about the end goal. Now you say, how could God in Genesis 1 call a creation that has the potential for suffering at the very least, but possibly even a measure of suffering was in the creation even before Adam and Eve sinned, how could he call such a creation very good? And now, to kind of answer that question from another angle, I want to put up a picture for you, okay? So, how many of you know what this animal is? It's a tiger. How many of you like tigers? I, I really love tigers. Very few of you. Are you actually serious? All of you who did not put your hands up, you don't like tigers? What do you like, turtles, chipmunks, <laughs> grasshoppers? How can you not? I mean, no, I don't want to hug them. I, if you have one at your house, I'm not going to come over, okay? But this is an absolutely, is, is that not a beautiful animal? That's a gorgeous animal. I mean, everything, just the, the proportions, the face, the, the fur, and the markings. And every one of us, as a Christian, would 100% agree that this animal shows evidence of design. Does it not show evidence of design? Amen. There is no way an animal so beautiful can be put together by accident that random forces of nature, working over a long period of time, presto, look at this perfectly engineered animal with intelligence, with claws. I mean, 600 to 700 pounds, the biggest ones get, okay? Now, any of you who has, has house cats, and you've seen what your house cats do to mice and birds, imagine your house cat at 600 to 700 pounds. I mean, this is, this is a, a, a beautiful, intelligent, amazing animal, and we would all agree that it's designed. Now, when God looks at a tiger, do you think God says, very good how many of you think? And I'll just, I'll just show you because I'm not trying. Sometimes I know, I, sometimes I trick you and then you feel kind of, I don't know what I want to do. So I'm just going to put my hand up. I really think God looks at this and says, very good. How many of you agree with me? Okay. I think very good. See, more of you put your hands up there. I think God looks at this and says, very good. And yet at the same time, now, as I've said that, I want you to think of something. No. Okay. Well, this animal, yeah, God says it's very good. But what is this animal designed to do? He doesn't eat vegetables, does he? <laughs> he doesn't eat carrots. He doesn't eat peas. He only eats meat. Kind of makes me want to be a tiger. <laughs> he is beautifully designed. We all agree. This could not be put together by accident. We all agree. This animal shows absolute evidence of design. There must be a God out there somewhere who designed this animal. We all agree with that, but most of us don't take it to the next place. We all agree this would be part of God's very good creation, but we don't think through the next piece, which is this animal is designed to kill. That's what it's designed to do. This animal brings suffering to the animal kingdom, and sometimes it's horrible, tragic. In certain parts of the world, they uh, kill humans. Every year, some human beings are killed by tigers, which is absolutely tragic. And yet, 
All of us here, or many of us, certainly I would be included in that, but many of us would say it would be a very sad thing if tigers went extinct. Isn't that true? Even though they bring suffering to the world, somehow this world would be a lesser place if there were no tigers on it. How is that possible? Well, it's the same way when we read Genesis chapter 1, and it says, and God saw all that he made, and it was very good. The fact of the matter is, God has a bigger plan. And very good doesn't just mean the absence of suffering. I'll tell you what very good means. It means perfectly designed for God's purposes. Does that make sense? Very good does not mean the absence of suffering. It means, very good means perfectly designed for God's purposes. Now, there's a world coming when there's no suffering. But in the meantime... And again, I should just say this again, too. Christians will disagree, and they can disagree, and that's totally fine. Uh, On when tigers started to eat meat, that's fine. Some Christians will say they are so perfectly designed to eat meat, they must have been killers from the beginning. Other Christians will say, no, they only started to eat meat after Adam and Eve sinned. Christians are allowed to disagree with that. At the very least, even if you think they only started to eat meat after Adam and Eve sinned, you still have to say they're designed to kill. They were designed with that potential from the very beginning. So God's creation, at the very least, if it didn't have a measure of suffering and animal death from the very beginning, it certainly had the potential for it. And God looked at that creation and said it's very good in the same way that we can look at a tiger and say it's very good. Why? Because we can see evidence of God's design. And very good in Genesis 1 does not mean the absence of all suffering. It means perfectly designed for God's purposes. And God's very good purposes include a future that is without suffering but includes a whole big plan beforehand where God says to us, it's actually better that we go through suffering first before we get to that final end product. I could share with you thousands of examples from nature, but I'll just stop there because of time's sake. We could talk about the laws of physics and how those same laws of physics that bring us life and are fine-tuned for existence in the universe, the same laws of physics that give us hurricanes and tornadoes, and you can't have one without the other. You can't have life without the death. And that's just how this world works. It's all perfectly engineered by God, and yet there is suffering in it. Now, how do we apply this? Let me finish this message with three things. How do we apply all of this? First of all, change the way we need to change the way we read Genesis 1 and 2. The Garden of Eden was not God's end goal, but phase one of a much bigger plan. Number two, we need to be in awe of God's sovereignty. Everything that has happened since Adam and Eve is not a mop-up plan. It's all part of the plan. When Adam and Eve sinned, they shouldn't have sinned. Okay, it's not good that they sinned, and yet their sin did not bring God's plan off the rails. It was on the rails the whole time. And when Satan killed Jesus, that didn't bring God's plan off the rails. He just played into God's plan. God is utterly sovereign. Things have never been outside of his control. He's had this plan since before Genesis 1-1, since before time began. And it's been marching forward to its ultimate conclusion, which will be the consummation of all things with Jesus Christ someday in the future. And then all suffering will stop. And in the meantime, no matter how bad things get in your life or how bad things get in the world, nothing is off the track of God's plan. It's been moving the whole time. It hasn't taken any detours. This is God's plan. Amen. Lastly, the application of that is we need to see God's power and sovereignty in our own suffering. 
If God can make something so beautiful out of a killer like a tiger, what can he do with the messy situations of your life? If God can make something so beautiful out of a killer like a tiger, what is he making out of the stuff in your life, the situations and the pain and the mess in your life? Suffering is part of his plan, and he believes in suffering so much that he himself put himself through it. He gave his only son and took on flesh and went through it himself. He believes in it. And ultimately, in his good and perfect will, it leads to something much better so that someday, when all the suffering is gone, we'll look back on his plan and said, say, we're so glad you did it the way you did it. So let's bow your heads. I want you just to bow your heads with me and close your eyes. And let's just take a moment to pray and ask Jesus to help us trust him in our suffering, in this plan that he has for us. Lord, Father, we just first of all thank you for your perfect plan. Thank you for your son, Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. Even before the Garden of Eden, even during the Garden of Eden, it was always about knowing you, Jesus. Help us to know you more. Help us, Lord, as many of us are here today. Some of us are coming, from, coming to church today out of situations that are in absolute chaos. Some of you are coming to you today in pain and physical pain and sickness. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to trust in your goodness and sovereignty, to know that ultimately you are in control. And now when we pray to you, we are coming to a God who understands us and knows us and loves us. And Lord, help us to focus. When, when it's tempting to get bitter and ask the question why, help us to remember to look ahead to the ultimate purpose, which is the elimination of this suffering. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.